Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 70. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. So today we're going to be discussing an article written in The Atlantic entitled The End of Thirst, and the article essentially discusses how there will be severe water shortages in the future unless humanity works together to act upon potential preservation and desalination and purification techniques and technologies to amend the problem and prevent it. And so there are six possible paths or ideas that are described in the article, and we'll go over them briefly. So first, there is drinking from the sea or desalination. We could use seawater and purify it so that it no longer contains salt and could be consumed as fresh water, of course. And this would be advantageous because roughly half of the world's population lives within 65 miles of an ocean, and salt water accounts for about 97% of all water on Earth. Of course, desalination requires vast amounts of energy, so it isn't necessarily efficient. And finally, on this tab, a $1 billion plant operated by an Israeli company is set to open north of San Diego and will be the largest of its kind in the Western Hemisphere, providing up to 50 million gallons of water a day to Californians. Another method is recycling wastewater, and this is actually very efficient. There are filters whose holes are one hundredth the size of a human hair, and that's the first step of filtration. And secondly, chemicals such as hydrogen peroxide or ozone and pulses of ultraviolet light destroy any pathogens that might have slipped through. And this is actually a very clean process and ultimately creates water that in many cases is cleaner than tap water or potentially bottled water. The only issue, as Keen notes, is human psychology and people's belief that it is in some ways unsafe or unclean to consume this kind of water. However, countries such as Singapore and Namibia have been doing this for years with no adverse health effects, and NASA started recycling water on the International Space Station in 2008. The third option would be to use microbes to digest the gunk, contaminants, or pathogens in the wastewater, and they are actually called electrogens because they can liberate electrons from the waste products and generate electricity in addition to cleaning the water. And this would be advantageous because in hypothetical situations, you could have bacteria who are not only cleaning the water, but generating enough electricity to power the plants in which they are cleaning the water, thereby becoming self-sufficient. The fourth idea that was proposed is actually not so much a new idea, but a continuation of what's already being done, entitled Keeping It Simple, and Keene describes a Guatemalan village that uses a system of fine plastic mesh strung between two posts, which captures a lot of water, and in their case, 6,300 liters of water a day, or in other situations, using a thin film of oil, which would prevent water evaporation, because as many experts say, more water is lost to evaporation than is consumed by people, and so a thin film of non-toxic chemicals would help prevent that evaporation. Finally, the last two ideas to me seem a bit far-fetched and not as energy efficient. There is, quote, making it rain, in which you would introduce or spray clouds and seed them with chemicals like silver iodide, which accumulate water and actually cause precipitation, although it doesn't seem to be terribly efficient and only yields maybe 3% more water than if seeding hadn't been done, although in cases of drought, this might be the difference between life and death. And finally, quote, the moonshot, or using celestial bodies such as asteroids or potentially our moon to harvest resources like water for human consumption, 
and some astronomers believe that the asteroid Ceres, which sits between Jupiter and Mars, might contain more fresh water as ice than all of Earth does, and also potentially water found in celestial bodies could be used to power space vessels as fuel, which I find very interesting. But Caroline, before we get into our discussion, would you read the timeline of water as it relates to humanity? So a brief chronicle of water. Circa 8,500 to 7,000 BC, some of the world's oldest known wells are dug on Cyprus. In 226 AD, Rome completes the last of its 11 aqueducts, which span a total of more than 250 miles. In 1945, fluoride is added to the water in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The cavity rate among school children drops by about 60%. In 1951, the U.S. Congress rather optimistically considers a bill calling for equitable distribution of precipitation among the states through weather modification. 2014, scientists conclude that Earth has likely had water since soon after it formed nearly 4.6 billion years ago. Earlier theories held that water arrived much later via asteroids or comets. And projecting into the future, 2035, companies begin harvesting water from asteroids in deep space. There are a few things from what you summarized about the article, Kip, that really make a lot of sense to me. One, drinking toilet water, which sounds ludicrous when even I say that makes a lot of sense. I mean, whenever I go hiking, the most effective form of water purification is a SteriPen, which literally you put it in the water. It gives off UV rays and kills all the bacteria in the water and enables you to drink water from streams, lakes, anything that might have any sort of fecal matter in it at all. And it is very effective. I'd say almost 100% effective. And I've never gotten sick or anything from drinking untreated water from it. And this sort of treatment, while it is not filtered, I think its resistance really revolves around that stigma you're talking about with human psychology, where it's just dirty to even think of drinking water that might have fecal matter in it. I'm using like a scientific term, like, but I could really just say any water that has poop in it, which is what people are like, ew, gross, I couldn't imagine thinking about drinking something like that. And I think it goes into a lot of issues with how we view uncleanliness in general. I mean, just because poop is like out of place, it sort of implies that it's now dirty and unsanitary when in fact it's really just another thing that's going into our body. I mean, we put water in our body and out comes urine. So, I mean, what's so gross about urine? But I think, as you said, and as the article states very well, it's human psychology. And I think if we can work towards shifting that stigma, I think it could be a really, really effective form of treatment. And I also was really struck by the keeping it simple portion of the article, which is really talking about basic innovations that really could be possible all over the world and that people in this Guatemalan village have pretty ingeniously crafted so that they can achieve quite a large supply of water. And I think this is pointing to another problem, particularly in the U.S., where we believe in order to have sustainable resources, oftentimes we need the highest technology possible. And it's this over-championing of new technology and science as being the top of the ladder. And oftentimes those options, yes, might be effective, but they're also incredibly expensive. And it just brings me back to this idea of just how we think. If we were able to change the way we thought about showering, the way we thought about drinking water, about cooking, about taking a bath, or washing our hands and really 
we're able to shift our worldview in a direction towards conserving water, conserving electricity. I mean, I still have friends and peers and housemates who don't think it's that big of a deal to keep the lights on all night long. I mean, I look at some of the buildings we have on campus and lights are on all night here. And I understand that might be a safety precaution, but at the same time, it's excessive. We don't need to keep lights on in buildings when there's no one in them. And I think that's just really about changing worldview and how we view the resources that are so readily available to us, yet we use them in excess unnecessarily, which really is detrimental to the world and to populations who don't have water like we do or electricity. I think it's important that you talk about changing worldviews because simply in bathing and showering, there's a comparison. And I know a lot of people attach a stigma to bathing and call it sitting in your own filth and it's not as effective as showering. And I personally don't know, and I'd be curious to learn if one is more effective than the other. But I do know that showering consumes way more water than bathing would because you have a tub that sits there and is filled and then emptied as opposed to showering, which of course is a continuous stream. And I think we don't appreciate how thoroughly we use water. For example, when shaving, we use water consistently and some people dry shave and it's more effective for them or doesn't cause them as much irritation. But water is a constant resource in all of our lives. And I would challenge listeners as I would challenge myself and even you, Caroline, to think of how many scenarios in which water appears in our lives. I drink it with meals. I shower. I brush my teeth. I personally shave with water. I use it consistently in the bathroom for various cleaning purposes. I use it when preparing food to boil water for pasta. It's a constant resource. And honestly, living a rather privileged life, I don't think I'm aware of how thoroughly I use it, even in terms of ice cubes. The fact that we can control the temperature of our water by freezing some water, which is not a privilege everyone has in the circumstances that they cannot afford refrigeration or freezing, is also something worth considering. In this article, I'm rather intrigued by the idea of using resources in outer space, and I have, of course, opinions to share, but first, did you have any response to that when I was reading it? As I was saying before, it just seems like that type of technology isn't necessary, at least not right now, and I think there should be more emphasis placed on the things we can do on a more simpler basic level that can solve the problems that exist in the world on Earth. And while yes, it's enticing to think about space and the world beyond and other resources for water, it seems, like I said before, expensive, where money could be invested in much cheaper and still equally effective means to harvest water. I agree. And I wonder, as I often do, to what extent humanity has the right to operate this way in the universe. And as you said, it would be expensive. We'd be using rocket fuel and materials to manufacture landing craft to harvest from asteroids or other entities out there in space. And I wonder to what extent humanity deserves it. And of course, I'm human and love a lot of human beings, but we are one species of many, many species on our planet, potentially in our universe. And I personally believe there are other species in the universe that exist and live as we do or differently. And regarding those species, perhaps they use water. If we harvest water from an asteroid that we are able to suspend, maybe we are taking microbes from other areas of our galaxy that could contaminate Earth and might be fatal to some life here, perhaps ourselves. And if not, maybe we are taking microorganisms from a natural habitat of theirs and altering their path to suit our needs. 
And I don't feel great about that personally, especially when you said there are operations and technologies that we can make use of on Earth without worrying about far-flung logistics that to me seem excessive and at the moment unnecessary. And I think that money or those expenses and resources could be put to better use. And I'm especially fond of simpler plans like oil films or self-sufficient microbes that digest the water and process it and also produce electricity, which is an equally valuable resource in the world, as you mentioned with lights. And I think there are simpler processes But I'm also a bit concerned of the idea of wars over water, because I don't think we consider water to be that type of resource. And in the modern world, it hasn't traditionally been that sort of resource in my recollection of history. But I'm sure there have been wars over water. I think of land, which is very stagnant. Well, like, yeah, what you're saying, do humans really have this right to manipulate either resources from asteroids or like what right do humans really have to want to preserve our species so much over others or really the earth itself? I mean, we're really just kind of extracting the earth. And I mean, this article is called The End of Thirst, but I mean, it's the end of our thirst, not the earth's thirst, right? So in this, the article, as you said, also mentions cloud seeding, which I think is a really interesting operation. Where I studied abroad in Madagascar, they actually do this. And it's not with silver iodide, but it's with dry ice. And they'll take planes literally up into storm clouds and drop dry ice so that it rains. And About halfway through my time there was when the wet season was supposed to start and it didn't, which you can say was the cause of many different factors, which I'm no expert on, but probably something to do with climate change. So in order to generate water for crops that people were especially reliant on, especially in a country like Madagascar where people are sustainable agriculturalists predominantly, water is a necessity in order to live, not just to shower and bathe and to drink, but to have food. And that's likewise in our society, but you and I, Kip, are not farmers and we're not dependent on the crops we grow because we don't grow crops. We're dependent on the grocery stores and having a surplus of fresh foods that we can eat to be healthy and to live. But in countries like Madagascar, seeding clouds is like a last resort. And they did it anyway, but then it sort of brings in the idea of man versus nature and what right do humans have to manipulate nature in that way and to really dominate nature in that way, especially when we're doing so much detriment to it ourselves with pollution. So it's like we're harming the earth in such a huge way and yet we're still going to push it just a little further so that we can survive. It's a double-edged sword. I think the relationship between humanity and nature is an important one because we can adapt our practices and our world to suit our lifestyles and our behavior as a species of 7.8 billion. And of course, it will grow exponentially, I'm sure. But we could also adapt that 7.8 billion to the world they live in and recognize that although it may not be a living entity, the earth contains a lot of life and will give a lot of chemical and thermal and physical signals of change and of potential disaster. And I worry that as people, we take those signals not as a declaration, 
but as a message with various possible interpretations. And our interpretation as people has been, all right, let's figure out more ways in which we can make clean water rather than maybe we should have fewer children so that less water is needed. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to purify water, but we continue to adapt the earth to ourselves as though that is what it's for. And I don't know that I necessarily feel that's the case, at least to the extent to which people have pursued it. I think a balance in which we respond to the nature in which we live. It goes back to worldview, I think. In Madagascar, if we want an example there, children and the amount of children you have is a signifier of wealth. And it's really hard to shift that perspective, especially, I mean, the government's really trying to do that now because population growth is skyrocketing and people cannot afford to feed all the children they have. So over the years, they have tried to instill an idea that you don't want 10 children. It's not economical. However, that's not an easy thing to do. And it's definitely not an easy thing to do if we want to change worldviews worldwide so that people are, if anything, more mindful of the amount of water they're consuming and how they're consuming it. I agree. I think mindfulness is absolutely important because a lot of water is wasted. And frankly, there are ways in which people could recycle water even without re-drinking water that's already been used for cleanliness. For example, you could bathe in water and then use that in your toilet system and it would never touch your mouth. You would never re-consume or consume that water in the first place, but it would still be used for its purposes in plumbing and in waste removal. And I feel like people will need to be creative in the future and in the present to respond to problems like these. I also want to talk about the possibility of war over water, or fresh water specifically, because that's a curious concept to me. I feel like wars are often fought over religious differences and over territory disputes, and of course, for ridiculous reasons like imperialism, where you're simply trying to expand your nation's resources or your state's resources of land and other valuables. But water, which is something that seems so transient and could potentially be consumed in a period of 100 years without any drinkable water left seems interesting because a war might require more water than typical living. And so you'd be using that resource as you're fighting over that resource. And it's just something curious to wrap my head around that, frankly, I don't fully understand. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think that's so interesting to think about as well, because I feel like in today's day and age, we fight a lot of wars over oil, another resource. But oil is so different from water. Water is essential for survival, whereas oil is just essential for consumer activities. Exactly. We've adapted our world to suit our lifestyles, which often include automobiles or airplanes or any technology or equipment that requires oil to be used rather than adapting to the world in which we live, in which both oil and water are finite resources. And I wonder when oil runs out, if those wars will continue, and also how scientists would go about estimating how much water there is left. Because with oil, I don't know to what extent science could reproduce oil rather than synthetically producing an alternative. But with water, there may not be a clear zero mark because you can repurify and recycle, quote, old water that's already been used. So I wonder to what extent a war would even be necessary in that case. But I also think that if there is a war on water, and if you're thinking ethically about this, then water being an essential resource for survival, if you are depriving another human population of water for yourself, that's a human rights violation, isn't it? You're talking about cutting off 
people with whom you are at least biologically synonymous with from a resource that they absolutely need and if they don't have the technology necessary to recreate it like you were saying and maybe then if everyone were able to do that then maybe there wouldn't ever be a war on water but there's continually this interplay of dominance and subordinance in the world and i don't see that going away anytime soon so it wouldn't be shocking to me if in the next 30, 50 years, this war and water that you're talking about does arise and those dominant countries don't take that humanitarian issue with extracting resources of water from those subordinate countries or populations. That in and of itself is problematic to say the least. Absolutely. And I could picture almost a dystopian environment in which those in the upper class or quote higher class citizens are allowed to drink the remaining fresh water that has never touched human hands or human lips and increasingly middle and lower class citizens are required to drink recycled or repurified water because continued human psychology dictates that it is in some way dirtier or lesser than. And I wonder if that would ever emerge as a possible scenario. I was also struck by the idea as you were talking about how necessary water is, with which I obviously don't disagree, that there are articles I've read online about the health benefits of water. And I think that's a luxury and a privilege that I can read and enjoy articles like that because for most people, water is not a luxury that helps after your workouts or keeps your skin clear. It's something, as you said, that you absolutely need. It's a chemical necessity in your body to keep things functioning, to keep your organs operating properly, to keep you thinking, I'm sure, properly. And maintain some form of homeostasis. And I think people who do think about water as a health benefit should be conscious of those who don't get to add on to their pre-existing relationship with water because they don't already have a great relationship with water, which, as we've said, is a very important resource. And for those who have clean drinking water and ample amounts of it to use, I would just ask that you appreciate it, as I know that I should be more appreciative of what we have to use in our resources as privileged individuals. Are there final questions or things you would like the audience to think about? I think in that same vein, there's always the question of positionality. And usually we think about that in terms of our relationship to other people. But you also need to be conscious about your relationship with the earth. And I wholeheartedly believe that that shouldn't be us dominating the earth, although it very often is but to at least be mindful of the fact that water doesn't really belong to you. And that in many ways, I mean, if we want to get lofty, the earth is very generously giving it to us. We just need to be mindful and conscious of how we're using it and use it in that same way, mindfully and consciously. I like that phrasing a lot. And I'd also be curious to hear from audience members if any of these six methods proposed by Mr. Keene stand out as more effective than others or more likely than others. As always, we'd love to hear what you think because we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. And if you have any comments, thoughts, or any feedback whatsoever, we would love it if you connected with us either via Twitter or Facebook. Our email is strideandsaunter at gmail.com. We encourage that you check out our website and perhaps listen to previous episodes if you enjoyed this one. And if you did enjoy it, we'd appreciate it if you subscribed and reviewed the show. It helps us expand, which we very much appreciate. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.